0: Reacting to the world's best science, the
1: Naked Scientist Newsflash.
0: This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Sarah Costa perry and let's kick off with a look at some of this week's top science stories. Sarah, what have you got for us?
2: Well, I've got a story that was published in the journal Science this week uh, from Michelle Reeler and her colleagues and they've actually found a new subspecies of mosquito that is very susceptible to the most dangerous form of malaria parasite. So most of what we currently know about the mosquitoes that live in this particular area of West Africa that they studied is because researchers go into people's houses and they capture the adult mosquitoes in the houses. But what Michelle Rila and her colleagues did was they actually collected larvae of this species called Anopheles gambii um, from pools around these villages in Burkina Faso. And what they found was there are actually two genetically distinct groups of these larvae. So one that is genetically clustered with the ones inside the houses, but then this whole other separate group, which is kind of interesting in a way that there's this whole separate group that people didn't know about because they've only been collecting mosquitoes inside the houses and what they did was they took them back to the lab and they fed them a blood meal so blood that had been infected with plasmodium falciparum which is the most deadly form of malaria to humans and what they found was that 58 percent of this exophilic so that the group that likes to live outside became infected compared to only 35% of the ones that were known to live indoors So the ones that have been captured before. So that's quite a large difference in the amount of infection and it's quite worrying that so many more of this new species are infected compared to the ones we know.
0: It's interesting that it was overlooked because of a sampling error. People were looking at the kind of mosquitoes that live in people's homes, reasonably I suppose, but they completely overlooked the mosquitoes that don't live in homes the species that have evolved and live outside people's homes and turns out they're really infectable but and this is a sort of fly or even mosquito in the ointment excuse me and that is just because they can be infected doesn't mean they actually pass it on to humans though does it
2: yes so this there isn't actually any evidence to suggest that these mosquitoes are anthropophagous which is a great word which means that there's no evidence that they actually feed on humans and just because they're more infectable with malaria doesn't necessarily mean that they are more likely to infect humans but it's kind of interesting because all of the current strategies for dealing with malaria are focused on what you can do in the home so mosquito nets over the bed spraying the insides of the houses with insecticides and obviously if there is this outdoor living group that could kind of scupper those plans we may need to possibly rethink our strategies.
0: Indeed. So just because there isn't any evidence that they do infect humans doesn't mean at the moment that they don't. We just need to, now we've identified them, go and have a look. Exactly. Well, sticking with the health theme, uh, the field of arterial graft surgery, in other words, bypasses and that kind of thing, looks set to make a big leap forward this week, uh, thanks to a breakthrough by scientists in America. There's a paper which is in the journal Science Translational Medicine. It's by Shannon Dahl and her colleagues, and they're based at a North Carolina company called Humocyte, and they have described a method for making very effective arterial bypass grafts, which are artificial. Now, let me explain what we mean by this. Sometimes blood vessels are either injured by trauma or they're injured by disease and they need to be replaced. So when you have a blockage to a coronary artery supplying your heart, for example, sometimes one way to treat that is to make a bypass around the block bit of artery by borrowing a blood vessel from the leg or occasionally when you have other bits of vessels that need bypassing, you have to put in an artificial graft. But not all vessels can be treated in this way, and sometimes patients' own vessels, like veins in their legs, are not suitable for this kind of purpose. So you need some kind of replacement vessel. But the ones that have been made up until now are very poor performers. In fact, they only stay patent, open, for about three years, if you're lucky, in about 25% of cases. So in other words, the majority, 75%, will fur up in less time than that, which is not very good news for the patient. But what this group do is ingenious. So they take a chemical which is called polyglycolic acid, PGA, it's a biocompatible material, and they make a tubular scaffolding out of this. They put it into a nutrient solution and they seed it with smooth muscle cells, the kind of cells you normally find in the walls of arteries in a human, and they incubate it in this environment for 7 to 10 weeks. And these smooth muscle cells grow all over this scaffold, eating it away as they do so. And what you end up with is this muscular tube of tissue. Now, you could implant that into a person, but then there would be cells in there that are not compatible with the person you're putting it into so how do you deal with that? Well what they do is to flush the tube through with a detergent solution and this decellularizes it, it destroys all the cells and that leaves behind just a tube of connective tissue that the muscle cells have made which turns out to be incredibly strong in fact the burst pressure for these vessels is about 3000 millimetres of mercury. Now to put that into perspective even someone with a lifestyle like mine would struggle to manage a blood pressure of about 200 millimetres of mercury as their systolic so that's at least 10 to 15 times higher than the pressure that most arteries in the body would encounter. They made vessels which were bespoke for baboons and cats and dogs and they were able to implant them into those animals and demonstrate they remained patent, open for long periods of time. And the other interesting thing is that when you implant these vessels, and the ones they made were about 6 millimeters in diameter, so that's a reasonable sized artery. The cells that normally line arteries are called endothelial cells, well they found that they migrated into these grafts and formed a sort of pavement layer on the inside of these graphs, making the inside surface very smooth and therefore they didn't fur up. So the next step will be to say well can we actually do this in human patients because there's every reason to suspect that it would be successful.
2: And I suppose that's also really good news because traditionally for a bypass you have to strip blood vessels out of other parts of the body like the legs. So if you if you don't have to do that it means one less element of surgery to perform on the patient.
0: Some people have veins that are not suitable because they've been affected by for instance varicosities, if they've got varicose veins, or the surgery's already been done or they have infections for example you can't use that tissue. So sometimes there just isn't a supply of tissue or you've already used the tissue and you need some more people who are undergoing dialysis for say renal replacement therapy if they've got a renal problem, they need to have arteriovenous fistulas made where you have a connection between an artery and a vein and you need to keep accessing it and if you keep on accessing normal tissue eventually it furs up so a thing like this that could be put in place could provide a ready access to a big source of blood so that that kind of thing became much easier to do in future now also this week uh, scientists have discovered how to create a thinking cap i love this it helps people to become much more creative The work's based on observations that sometimes damage to the front part of the brain's left temporal lobe can disclose extraordinary artistic and musical talents that a patient never knew they had. And now Richard Chee and Alan Snyder from the Centre for the Mind at the University of Sydney have used a non-invasive technique called transcranial direct current stimulation to harmlessly reduce the activity in this front part of the brain, which boosted the problem-solving abilities of a large group of healthy volunteers. Alan Snyder.
1: Well, the big picture, I guess, is inspired by the quote from William Blake. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. So we were confronting the challenging problem of how to artificially induce a less filtered view of the world, one less constrained by preconceptions.
0: In other words, the world that we see is one tinted by past experience. You learn something and that informs the way that you interpret the world henceforth.
1: Precisely. Our perceptions, our memory, our decisions are based on filtered information. We view the world, in a sense, top-down through concepts, through mental templates, which are built up from our past experience. And, of course, these concepts are crucially important for our survival. They enable us to make rapid predictions about what is most likely based on only partial information, but the strategy leaves us susceptible to certain kinds of perceptual and cognitive errors, visual illusions, false memories, prejudice, and it makes us inclined to connect the dots in ways that are familiar rather than to explore novel interpretations.
0: Which makes it much harder to think outside the box. If you're trying to solve a problem and you're trying to solve a hard problem that other people have grappled with, there's probably going to be an original solution. Going down the same wrong road they have is the wrong approach. You need to think a new way. And if we could find a way to do that, we'd be better off.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not the wrong approach, it's the very, it's the good approach, <laughs> but it's not going to work if, if it doesn't apply. In other words, our observations of the world and the problems we're talking about are strongly shaped by our preconceptions from previous problems where that didn't work.
0: So how have you tried to get an angle on what the brain is doing and how to get around that problem then?
1: Well, what if we could temporarily inhibit this top-down processing and thereby access a level of perception normally hidden from conscious awareness? Might we be able to have a world which is less preconceived? Of course, you'd only want to do this temporarily. We need our conceptual makeup. We, we don't want to be like an infant. But that's the kind of rationale that's behind our work.
0: So how did you actually tackle this problem? What did you do?
1: We use non-invasive, safe non-invasive, transcranial direct current stimulation to inhibit the left interior temporal lobe, that's an area associated with conceptual processing, labels, and categories. In addition, we simultaneously excited the right anterior temporal lobe, an area associated with insight and novel meaning. The objective was to temporarily induce a less filtered, less assumption-driven cognitive style.
0: And what did you ask people to whom you were doing this to do in order to see if they were thinking in a new way or thinking more originally?
1: Well, we took a sort of standard problem of insight, a matchstick, arithmetic kind of visual problem, and we showed them how to do one class of those problems and then asked them to do a much harder problem that required a novel turn, novel twist. And the people who received direct current stimulation, three times as many of them solved the problem than those in the control group
0: and the argument would be that because you had to think about the problem in a novel way this suppression of the left side of the brain which normally forces you to think in this hypothesis led familiar or way informed by familiarity that having been turned off they began to think in a novel way and that's what gave them this insight to solve the problem in the new way
1: yeah that's the way we look at it
0: so now you found this What's the next step? Is it to say, right, Okay, can we try and apply this to other modalities? So that's a problem-solving task. It's a part visual, part cognition. Are you now going to start looking at other things that might be informed by the same strategy?
1: You're right. Every sensory modality uses the top-down process. So we indeed have been trying to think of other experiments that we could... To, that would illustrate this concept, and we have a few in mind.
0: Maybe you need to, to stimulate your brain to suppress the activity <laughs> in the left anterior temporal lobe to see what comes out. Yeah. Um, but practically speaking, could you use this for anything? Do you think musicians should plug themselves in? Should mathematicians grappling with tough problems plug themselves in like this to see if they can free their mind?
1: We both suggested that it could be... Richard Chee and I suggested that it might be a thinking cap... And the concept about a thinking cap, I think many people regard a thinking cap as something that might be a Google retriever. But we don't need that because we have Google. What we really need in the future is a way to connect seemingly disparate pieces of information into a new synthesis. In other words, to look at things afresh. And that is what I would hope a thinking cap could give us, a creativity enhancer in that sense. and Yes, I think this is something that could be used in the future. I mean, it's a very simple device. It uses the 9-volt battery. What we need to do is try to optimize the configuration of stimulation on the brain. We need to think about the time interval that we want to expose people to. There are many variables here to, to optimize this once you accept the reality or the proof of principle.
0: I think I could use one of those thinking caps. That was Professor Alan Snyder who's the Director of the Centre for the Mind at the University of Sydney and he published that work this week in the journal Plus One. Sarah.
2: I've got a story now which is a bit of a worrying story about drought in the Amazon. Back in 2005 uh, the Amazon rainforest suffered quite a catastrophic drought which was billed as a once-in-a-century event and droughts like this are caused by increased sea surface temperatures in the Atlantic Ocean. But now a team led by Simon Lewis from the University of Leeds have analysed data from another drought, which was in 2010, and they've concluded that this was in fact even more serious than this once-in-a-century event, and that successive droughts like this could start causing massive global problems. They found that 57% of the Amazon region had low rainfall in 2010 compared to 37% in 2005, and also that the water stress on the trees was more severe. And they worked this out using a measure of drought severity called the maximum climatological water deficit. Uh, and this actually correlates really well with how likely trees are to die from drought. And uh, they estimated that about 3.2 million kilometres squared of forest in 2010 would have suffered uh, a level of drought enough to cause significant tree death compared to 2.5 kilometres squared in 2005. Um, So, well, why is this important? Well, the Amazon acts like a giant carbon sink. It takes in a lot of CO2 from the atmosphere and locks it up in plant matter. And this has helped to act like a buffer against all of the CO2 that we've been pumping out into the atmosphere. But if droughts like the 2005 and 2010 events keep happening, uh, and they will if sea surface temperatures continue to rise, which they have been for the last few years, more trees will either be suffering or will in fact die. And this means that not only will they stop taking in CO2, but they'll actually start to release more of it as a result of being broken down by microbes and that sort of thing. And another effect of increasing temperatures, combined with the fact that you'll have a build-up of dead plant matter, is an increase in the likelihood of forest fires, which is another big source of CO2 as well. So um, the researchers suggested that this actually could become a positive feedback cycle. So you have increasing temperatures, more trees die, so less take-up of CO2, greater release of CO2 which in turn feeds back into the cycle of increasing the sea surface temperatures again making the whole thing worse so it just gets worse and worse and could have really catastrophic effects.
0: It's a worry isn't it because the Amazon of course is locking away billions of tonnes of carbon dioxide every year and it's paradoxical to think that raised sea temperatures which actually make more hurricanes and more rainfall in North America rob water from South America and then make that happen in the Amazon. Certainly worrying news. Now, just to finish us off, uh, there's a very nice paper which has been published in the journal Science this week. It's by researchers in Zurich, Donald Hilvert and his colleagues. And this caught my eye because it's intriguing what they're doing. They've been looking at an enzyme which is called lumazine synthase. And it's actually involved in making one of the B vitamins, vitamin B2, riboflavin. That's not so important as the fact that when you make this lumazine synthase inside a bacterial cell, what the enzyme does is it groups together with other enzymes of the same kind and they assemble automatically into a sort of ball but this is a hollow ball so you could potentially put something inside it and what this group do is in e coli which they're genetically modifying they make this enzyme make these balls but they've changed the amino acid sequence inside the the balls, a little tiny bit so it has a strong negative charge. And what they're then able to do is to make the bacteria make other things, including things which are normally so toxic that the bacteria wouldn't be able to make them. And because they've tagged those toxic things with a positive charge... What happens is that when the bacteria make them, they then get packaged inside these little footballs that are being made inside the bacteria, and so the bacteria remain viable and don't die. And this potentially could be one way that you could make bacteria make the currently unmakeable, because we want to use bacteria to make chemicals which we could use as drugs or other therapeutics or for other forms of research, and some things just can't be made because they kill the bacteria when they try to make them. These ones, though have got round it because the toxic stuff just gets packaged inside the balls where it can't do any harm and re-extracting it is very easy because all you do is bust open the bacteria, you separate out these little footballs and then you break those open and the stuff that you've been making, which is packaged inside, comes out and you can then use it. Isn't that intriguing?
2: Interesting stuff. Well, if you'd like to read up on anything we've covered so far this week, the references and the transcripts for each of the news stories we've discussed are online at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news.
0: The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.